Just need a moment to get set up here. Okay, we are in a series called Choose Your Own Adventure, and the idea is very simple, just like the old school Choose Your Own Adventure books, where you got to kind of have a say in determining how the story goes. We sent out a survey last month and said, hey, what, what are things you want to talk about related to Jesus, God, the Bible, faith? And uh, got a number of responses and some great questions, trying to lump them all together, ones that overlap at least, and then trying to cover as much ground as we can. But there's a, a, a lot of them, so I might not be able to get to all of them in, a, all of them in four weeks. Today we're going to go through four, and we're going to have to go through them pretty quickly. So what that's going to mean is we're going to be shifting gears four times. There's going to be kind of four disparate areas. It's not going to be kind of one thematic movement where you can kind of just coast in and kind of set your mind to cruise control. You're going to have to be getting ready to downshift and move into different things. So my, my, essentially I'm asking you if you're ready. Are you ready? That didn't sound too ready. Are you ready? Say, say yes, Jeff, I'm ready. Okay, that was almost convincing. Here we go. Question number one. What does Christianity teach about how we should approach the issue of materialism? Uh, Great, great question. Materialism, essentially, probably most people would associate that with the idea that uh, in the abundance of material things is the abundance of life. The more uh, material prosperity I have, the more generic prosperity I have. My Life satisfaction and happiness is directly correlated to how much material possessions and stuff I have or have access to. So it's essentially the the worldview that would say uh, consumerism and uh, having things leads to happiness and fulfillment. This is not a new issue. It's been around since the dawn of time. There are lots of warnings throughout the Bible about the dangers of materialism, but we have to make some really, really careful distinctions because wealth and material possessions are never condemned as something evil in and of themselves in the scripture, but they're always attached to a warning. So wealth and possessions, money, are never seen as evil, but they are always cautioned as something tremendously powerful that do seem to exert a different kind of shaping influence on our hearts. It seems to, if you look at history, if you even just take a moment to look at your own heart, for for the vast majority of people, the acquisition of things tends to be the main vehicle through which the human desire, um, well, the human sin of idolatry tends to express itself. Every human idolizes certain things that they presume, if I just had that... I'd have access to the security and the guidance and the power and the wisdom that I need for life. I'd be saved and delivered out from my regular ho-hum life and I'd be delivered and saved into something great. And wealth and money tend to be the dominant vehicle through which we aspire to lay hold of those idols. In Luke 12, if you want to turn there, if you have a Bible, uh, Luke 12, there is a... Oh, I was right there. I didn't need to turn to it. Uh, There's a parable that Jesus teaches... Uh, called the parable of the rich fool. And there's these two guys who come to Jesus and they're like, teacher, help me, dis- help me settle this dispute that I have about my inheritance with my brother. I want to make sure, you know, there's this big inheritance, there's a lot of money at stake. So I'm coming to a rabbi so that you can f- faithfully arbiter between the two of us. And Jesus says, uh, listen, who appointed me 
a judge or an arbiter between you. Jesus, Jesus says, that's not really my role. But then he says this. He says, watch out. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus is warning these people. He's saying, be careful not to fall into the all-too-common trap that the more that I have and the more that I acquire, the happier and the more fulfilled I will be. Jesus says that's just not true. And if we have any lick of wisdom, and if we reflect on our own experiences and look out into the world of the experience of people who just continue to consume, consume, take, uh, amass more and more and more, that is clearly not correlated with your happiness. I usually say this to, um, to people in their young adulthood, late 20s. I say, how many of you are making more money than you did when you were 15? Almost everyone puts their hand up. How many of you are making tremendous amount more money by your late 20s or early 30s than you were. Paycheck, how much money is coming in? Oh yeah, but is that, is the amount of extra, more money that you have coming in, is that correlated to your happy, happiness? Are you like literally like 170% happier? Are you 1,000, 1,500% happier now that you're making all this money? And almost all of them say no. And a lot of them say, more money, more problems. Like it's actually in a weird way, sometimes the inverse. And so Jesus isn't saying money and wealth is uh, evil, but it is powerful, and we need to be careful with it. He warned in Mark 4 about the deceitfulness of wealth choking out God's activity in our life. In the uh, Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't store, up for your tre- don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where it can just be destroyed or, or, th- or taken away. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven by accumulating relationships and by investing in love and by investing in the gospel in other people's lives. I had never noticed this before, but actually the Bible commands me to tell certain things to people who are rich and have access to wealth and what we might say today, economic privilege, which to a greater or lesser extent is everybody in the room. So I'm not trying to point particular fingers. We all experience a tremendous degree of economic prosperity just by virtue of the fact of where we live and having access to the economy that we do. And the Bible actually says in 1 Timothy, this is Paul writing to a young pastor, and he says, I, I, want, I, command, I want you to command those who are rich a few things. So I'm going to do that this morning. I'm commanding this to myself because I consider myself rich, and I am going to follow Scripture's command, uh, command to command you in these things as well. I'm to command you not to be arrogant, kind of presume your wealth is, is yours and your wealth insulates you from having to listen to God or humble yourself before him. I'm to command you not to put your hope in wealth because it's very uncertain. It can be here today, gone tomorrow. It's a blessing from God, but it's to be leveraged for his kingdom. And once you start putting your ultimate faith and trust in it, that's dangerous. I'm to command you to put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Our material blessings are not something we should shun. Christians are not called to asceticism where we forego pleasure and we never enjoy the blessings of God. Part of the gift of gifts God has for us in this world is to enjoy his blessings. But we're to put our hope in God. We're to put our ultimate allegiance in him and command them to do good. So do good with your wealth and your possessions. Command them to be rich in good deeds. Don't just look at your bank account and say, look at all the stuff I'm storing up monetarily, but am I rich in good deeds? If, if my week-to-week and month-to-month overlay of 
ways that I was blessing other people, if that could be quantified, would I still be considered rich? Would I have a lot of capital investments if you could quantify doing good and sharing with others? And the last thing it says, command them to be willing to share. God has entrusted us with wealth, but we're to leverage it and use it for his kingdom. And so the Christian response to materialism is it's not evil, or sorry, material goods and, and, uh, and, and wealth and, and even economic prosperity. That's not evil to be in that situation, but it is very dangerous. And we should be always looking about how can we use our wealth, whether we believe it's meager from our perspective or much, how do I use that to glorify God and to bless other people? How do I use that for your kingdom? Take our eyes off ourselves. How do we leverage that for God's kingdom? So that's a short little response to that one. How do I deal with recurring thoughts of past mistakes? I know that I'm forgiven, but my past mistakes keep popping up in my mind, usually when I'm tired or feeling down. Probably a pretty common experience for a lot of people. Uh, just a few things here. That, again, this is a, you could do a whole series on this. But I'll just throw out some things that I thought are probably fairly important. Number one, I think when, we're, when past mistakes come to mind, I think we want to be aware of whether or not we're experiencing conviction or condemnation. Conviction is the sense of being able to look at something and just truthfully say, yeah, this is wrong, this is a misstep, and I need to learn from that. And hopefully I have learned from that, and these are the lessons that I've learned from that. Condemnation is when the memory is, uh, is, comes to you and then you're flooded with a sense of uh, condemnatory feelings or ideas. Oh, because of that, I'm so worthless. God could never use me. Um, this part of my life's never gonna be able to flourish. I can't believe I did that. I'm so miserable. Like, I, can't, I can't wrap my, how could I be so stupid? So those kinds of condemnatory uh, impulses, I don't believe are from... God at all. Uh, I think certainly for a Christian, if we've gone to God with confession and repentance, then we may still remember past misdeeds, but they're more now for our instruction. And we can look at them and look at them honestly and name them for what they were, but they're no longer part of our identity. Our identity is now in Christ, and we can have a healthy sense of distance to say those are now dealt with in Christ, but how do I move forward? Now, that being said, that does kind of bring up the question, has there actually been confession and repentance for those past mistakes? I think it is important to be bringing before God uh, past mistakes. And sometimes you'll go through years and not recognize something and then God brings something to mind and you're like, oh, that is something I need to confess as a sin before God and repent of, turn away from. There's a really interesting thing in Second Peter where Peter's writing to a church in Second Peter 1 and he says, Okay, um, add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and then self-control and then perseverance and godliness and brotherly love and then kindness. And he says, um, some people have, uh, doing this, building your faith this way will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone doesn't have these things, if they're not building on their faith, He's nearsighted and blind, and he's forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. So sometimes the Bible infers and seems to indicate that when we're not growing in our faith moving forward, we can kind of get pulled back. Even, even though sins have been dealt with, they can still kind of define us. We can still see ourselves through the lens of our past mistakes rather than, oh, I'm a new creation, a new creature in Christ, where those things are mistakes, but they no longer are wedded to my identity. 
Paul in Philippians 3 says, listen, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of the life fully that God has for me, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize. So there is a healthy sense of once you confess and repent, you uh, are liberated and empowered as a Christian to move forward. You don't get extra spiritual brownie points when you confess your sin to God, when you repent, God says, I forgive you. And you says, well, I'm going to hold on to that a little bit longer. I'm not going to forgive myself. Or I'm going to keep dredging this up as a kind of personal purgatory that doesn't make you more spiritual. It, it doesn't make you more earnest. It actually puts you, uh, that's a different way of living a very self-centered life. Because you're essentially saying, I'm making myself the ultimate forgiver and judge over my life. I know God says I'm forgiven, but I'm not going to let myself off the hook. That's actually a very dangerous spiritual place to be. It's very spiritually self-serving. Number two, has there been restitution? Sometimes we've asked God for forgiveness, but things stick with us because we haven't, we haven't actually tried to make things right if we've maybe offended a party. So I might hurt someone or I might do a series of actions that hurt people. I might then say, and it might kind of be bothering me, and I'm like, well, I don't know why this is bothering me. Like, I went to God with it, and I asked God for forgiveness, and I I know God's forgiven me and I'm good with God, but it's all, sometimes it's the Holy Spirit saying, yes, for sure, you've worked on this dimension, the vertical dimension, but have you actually sought out peacemaking on this level? Have you gone and have you essentially confessed to this person and said, you know what, maybe I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I think what I did really hurt you and I'm sorry, is there anything I can do? You know, there are people, it's kind of like Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus didn't just say, wow, I swindled a ton of money out of people and I see now Jesus is the way sorry God sorry Jesus I want to follow Jesus he does that but then he says I'm going to give half what I have to the poor I'm going to pay back anybody that I've stolen from four times and Jesus says salvation has come here this is real because it wasn't just an idea it wasn't just words it wasn't just a confession it was real repentance that tried to make a restitution so I think that with past mistakes keep occurring, I think one thing is to recognize that sometimes those things are a place of conviction where we say, yeah, that was a mistake. I want to learn from them. But if we feel condemned by them, then I think we need to go through that process of again, again of saying, have I confessed this to God? Uh, have I honestly repented of this? And then when we do, recognize Hebrews 8.12, where God says, through Christ, I'm going to forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. So what we're dealing with is not something that God is dealing with. When we wake up, God isn't saying, hey, you know what I haven't thought about in a while? That thing you did 16 years ago. But it just popped into my mind. Just saying. That, like, that's not how God operates. He remembers our sins no more. He doesn't just forgive them, but then hold them as a way to say, uh, uh, remember? I mean, he's forgiven, but I'll pull them out if it's advantageous for me to get leverage on you. God says, as far as the east is from the west. And so if those are kind of encroaching on your mind, that's important for us to reject as something that's from God and in a condemnatory way and just say, no, God, you've forgiven me of my sin. I've confessed, I've repented, I've made restitution where I can. And then I just take every thought captive and I just learn to reject it. And just in general, be very careful what we give power over to in our thought life when we're tired or feeling down because that's not um, a lot of spiritual writers uh, from, from Solomon and Ecclesiastes all the way to today will say a lot of people have been discouraged and have been derailed in their faith by giving too much, um, giving too much power over to things that 
kind of accost them mentally or in their spirit when they're tired or feeling run down. I think that's why the scripture says so clearly from beginning to end to establish certain rhythms of rest in your life. Sabbath, times of prayer, times of quiet, times of stillness, times of rejuvenation, friendships have poured into you. Because when we get pulled very thin, um, that's when we, uh, our, our guard is down and our defenses are down. The enemy can attack us. Self-sabotaging uh, anti-Christian thoughts can, can hurt us as well. Third question. How should I respond when people talk neg- negatively about Jesus? I'm going to do this really, really quick. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 says this. But in your hearts, Christians, set apart Christ as Lord. Christ as Lord. Set him apart. He is your king. He is your goal. He is your aim every day. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared. Don't be pushy. But if they ask, you share. But do this with gentleness and respect. Whenever you share about me, I want you to do it with gentleness and respect. That's to be the hallmark of what it means to share Jesus. Keeping a clear conscience. You never do anything where you look back now and say, uh, maybe I didn't do that the right way. Maybe it's a bit too bullish. Maybe I was a bit too pushy. No. Keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you and against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. You share your faith in such a way that even if people are trying to stir up dirt about you, they have to ultimately say, I think, you know, I think what Ed's pushing with this Jesus thing is a total joke. I think it's ridiculous. But I kind of wish there were more Ed's in the world. Like, I really liked my time with him. He was really caring and he seemed genuine. Total, total dumb ideas. Like, I just think the whole thing, get religion out of the schools, get religion. But, uh, but if Ed came back, I'd want, him, I'd want to grab a coffee with him. I mean, that should be the tension that non-believers feel as they interact with us. So if you have people talking negatively about Jesus, about faith, about your own faith, about the church, I just kind of focus on four things. I try and understand where they're coming from. That goes a long way. Instead of being defensive, I just try and tell me more about that. Where where does that idea come from? Why do you feel that? Respond with a question. Usually, why think this? You know, I I just think this. Oh, where where did you get that idea from? Like, again, where... Well, I... I, um, I read this book once, uh, Richard Dawkins' thing. Did you read like any of the counter arguments or did you just read that book? I mean, usually you can kind of undermine, people tend to come to conclusions very, very quickly in our culture. So if you just ask them about even have they researched an opposing opinion, most of them will say, well, no. And that will begin to hopefully collapse their house of cards a little bit to say, oh, maybe I've just arrived at a conclusion that I'd like rather than actually done my homework. When it's appropriate, especially in the context of a relationship, share your perspective. You know, why well, I, I wouldn't see it like that, or I think, while that I understand your concern, I think there would be this issue in play here, or for me, the evidence is very clear over here. And number four, this is important. I think this is what First Peter says, bless them. Uh, give, buy them a book. Keep nurturing a relationship with them. Let them know that your loving them isn't simply contingent on you, them agreeing with you. Look for ways to say, hey, you know what? This is a great conversation. Let's continue it. Or how about we do a book exchange? I'll read that Richard Dawkins book if you read this Timothy Keller book. And then we'll get together in a month or two and we'll discuss it. I think those are really important ways to keep the relationship going. Okay, last question. This is probably a little bit longer, but we'll move through this quickly as well. People say they hear or have heard the audible voice of God. Does that happen in this age? If so, how can we know the difference between the voice of God and our own imagination? 
Great question, important question. So does this happen? And I would, I don't know how to answer this other than saying, like the short answer would say, I think it, it does. Uh, there's certainly nothing in the Bible that would indicate that God cannot now or would not now speak to someone audibly or dramatically. It's kind of like the question with miracles last week. I've heard of spontaneous miracles, but I've, you know, where these radical, miraculous things, physical healings happen. It's, I've never seen it. I've never experienced it. Do those things actually happen? They seem to. Um, and it's kind of the same here. I mean, some people will use the language. I heard the voice, the audible voice of God say to me, say a word or a, a scripture comes to mind or something like that. Or not comes to mind, but they hear a scripture. However, I think what I'd want to be clear on is I think what the biblical narrative, Genesis through Revelation, and particular passages point to is that hearing the audible voice of God is extremely rare. I mean, it's even rare in the Bible. And the Bible is kind of like the highlights of God speaking to people. But it's still tremendously rare. I think God speaks to Abraham under five times in his whole life. But Abraham lives to be like a bajillion years old. So we read that story. We're like, wow, God and Abraham talking all the time. And yet in Abraham's life, that's a tremendously rare occurrence. One of the things that shocked the Israelites, who were the people, the covenanted people of God, was that God set Moses apart and God allowed Moses to come up on a mountain and talk to him face to face like a man talks to another man. And that wasn't seen as like, wow, you mean everybody can do that? It's like, no. That is extremely rare. And it is miraculous that Moses isn't obliterated in the presence of God. But that's never seen as something normative in Scripture, um, even in the New Testament. While speaking audibly, an external audible voice, it might occur, I personally don't think it's wise, and I don't think it's even biblical to seek to hear from God in that way. Two reasons for it. Number one, Jesus actually pushes back on people in the first century context who were hearing his teaching but wanted a more dramatic sign, wanted a greater external proof that God was real. The Pharisees are listening to him. They're hearing him preach the gospel. The, the, they're hearing the Son of God preach the gospel, and they're like, that's great. Could you give us a sign? Then that'll be, that'll be good. And Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. If I am standing here in front of you and telling you the truth, and you're not simply willing to respond to my truth, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to give you a sign. The only sign that's going to be given is the sign of the prophet Jonah. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, we live by faith, not by sight. And I think that's another scripture that would push back on traditions that might want to say that God speaks to us audibly and in very direct ways, very consistently to guide us. When the scripture says, actually, we live more of our life by faith, not by sight. We don't know the obvious way to go. That's why the scripture compels us again and again and again to seek and to get wisdom so that when life's decisions aren't easy, God has built up a reservoir of wisdom within us and the spirit through that can guide us. We walk by faith, not by sight, meaning we have to walk trusting. I often don't know what's 10 steps ahead of me, but God has shown me in different ways what the first step is, and now I humbly obey. How does God speak to us? There's lots of scriptural adva uh, 
um, ex- examples. I've listed them in your handout, but I'm just going to list them here quickly. God speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us supremely through Jesus and the Gospels. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in all kinds of ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And the book of Hebrews is all about saying, Old Testament was a shadow. New Testament is the sub- substance. Old Testament was less than ideal. This is the ideal. Less than ideal, God speaking audibly to prophets, to his people, to Moses. That's less than ideal. The ideal, coming down in human form, speaking to us in the flesh as his son. We now have the gospel records of that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's, that's the high standard. God can speak to us through nature and God's creation. Romans 1 says that. He can speak to us through other believers, through circumstances, through an inner, maybe non-audible voice, impressions of the Holy Spirit. Elijah on the mountain says, you know, God wasn't in the whirlwind. He wasn't in the fire. He was in the still, small voice, right? The psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. So there's a very clear emphasis in all of Scripture, narratively and in direct passages, that God is, uh, I would argue, almost continually communicating with us. But it's just very, very rare. That's an actual audible directing. Through dreams, you know, Joseph has a dream, that's how uh, Joseph and Mary are warned. Through visions, you know, Peter and Cornelius have visions of an angel. So these are all ways that God speaks to us, or speaks to the human community, but it seems, both experientially, pastorally, scripturally, that the more, let's just use the word, uh, uh, fantastic ways of vision, um, an audible impression or just a dominating sense of like, you know, kind of the Martin Luther, like lightning from heaven, bam, this, this, this idea came to me. Those tend to be rare. And we shouldn't feel unspiritual or disconnected from God because we don't hear from God in that kind of direct way regularly. The scripture really doesn't indicate that that's going to be normative for Christians. The normative experience for for Christians is we press into God through prayer, through diving into scripture, through Christian community, and somehow mysteriously through that, the spirit, I I prefer to use the language, gives us impressions or convictions of certain things. That isn't always a word. It's just like, you know, you hear Ed sharing about Nicaragua, and there's a part of you that's like, I need to pick up one of those magazines and, like, check that out. I think that's God putting an impression. I think it's the Holy Spirit communicating something to you, guiding you, but it's not necessarily an audible voice. How do you know if it's your ideas or God's ideas that are swirling around in there? I think this is actually pretty simple. God's leading, God's voice, if you want to use that language, is never going to be inconsistent with his word. I was really praying about it, and my girlfriend and I have come to the conclusion that, like, because of where we're at spiritually, we're going to move in together. We're not going to do marriage, like, and generally it's wrong to like have sex before marriage, but um, it's different for us. I think we have an understanding of like what love is and about commitment and a, and a bunch of things. And we just saw God on that. We just really have a peace about it. And we just sense God saying like, that's okay. I, I don't need to spend much time trying to unravel whether this is from God or not when God says all, uh, all sex outside of a covenanted marriage relationship is sinful uh, to one degree or, or another. Um, I've really been praying about this and God just says I just need to uh, step back from uh, my commitments to, to my family. Kind of the eat, pray, love thing. I'm just going to take a year or two off and just kind of 
leave that and like I, f- I should kind of feel peace about that, I feel good about that. Like th- th- those are, God's leading is never going to contradict the responsibilities and callings that he has. So the, the, the more you want to be sure about if it, is this God's voice in my life, you just need to immerse yourself in scripture. Be reading it every day, memorizing it, uh, um, pressing into it. So God's voice is always going to be consistent. His voice generally, and I think this bears out in Christian history, tends to be quiet. It tends to have to be something we have to listen for. Again, that's why there's so many commands in the scripture about taking time to Sabbath, be still, take time to pray, pray by yourself, pray in community, but be listening, have a posture of humility. Um, God is definitely wanting to communicate with us, but we have to still ourselves, obviously, because like C.S. Lewis says, God is a gentleman. The normative pattern is not God interrupts us in the middle of our day. We carve out space for God, and then God can gently lead us through impressions and bringing scriptures to mind or uh, convictions. And the Lord speaks clearly when he speaks. Um, and, and what I just mentioned before, also, the Lord speaks conviction. The Lord does not speak condemnation. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if we're sitting there and we're overwhelmed with thoughts of, like, you're a miserable sinner, you're never going to amount to anything, or because you did this, like, you, you don't even bother going to church tomorrow, like, you're too, that is just not from God. Might come from yourself, might come from the enemy, doesn't matter, but you can just affirmatively say that is not from God. God brings conviction, never condemnation. I researched a lot of different people from a lot of different traditions, and I think my favorite, and I'll close with this, my favorite idea about how do we, in a sense, what we're asking is, like, can we access God in a way that goes just beyond thinking ideas about God or having this dry relationship? We want to have a a sense of communion with God, and the Bible says that is possible. But one writer who I read, who I really appreciated, said this. The word of, the word of God, th- this Bible, is more sure in what it communicates about God and from God than anything else outside of this. So if we are immersing ourselves in this, and particularly the Gospels, where we're literally saying, Lord, speak to me through the words that you spoke to people, by your spirit, here I am, Lord, speak to me, that is incredibly sure. But outside of the Bible, you have fallible, uncertain impressions and messages. While inside, you have rock-solid assurances. And they said, it seems like folly to crave the lesser authority. And it seems like folly to crave the lesser riches. There are people in Nicaragua, and certainly in places like North Korea and China, who would give everything they have not to hear an audible voice of God. They wouldn't do that. I guarantee they wouldn't if you asked them. But they'd, get every, they'd give everything they have to get access to this. Every single oracle of God. The words of the living God. Every single one. And so I think, just like with miracles, God can do whatever he wants to do. I'm open to God doing powerful, uh, amazing things because God is amazing and powerful. But the pattern that I see encouraged again and again, both in Jesus' life and example, narratively, kind of through the whole movement of Scripture, is we are to be people immersed in the Word of God. And we're going to presume that God's going to lead us primarily through an engagement of praying through and reading and memorizing and meditating on the Word of God. God will use all these other things in our lives as well, 
but this has got to be the foundation. And, but I love that closing idea of don't, don't crave the lesser authority. Don't crave the sign when we have God's word and it is something beautiful and powerful. And if we're in it and surrender to the Holy Spirit, God will impress upon our hearts um, the things that we need to hear if we're attentive to his word. Let's pray. God, as we close today, I pray that you would make us people of your word. That, um, but not, uh, not people of your word in the way that the Pharisees were, where they were just trying to figure it out like some kind of puzzle or master it in a way that allowed them to say, look at how self-righteous I am. You know, Jesus, you, I remember you saying that, you know, they looked to the scriptures because they thought that in the scriptures they had life, but the scriptures pointed to you. So we come to the scriptures, not simply to have an encounter with the Bible, we come to the scriptures to have an encounter with you, mediated through your word and by your spirit. And so would you teach us how, to ha- how that happens, God? And would you continue to guide us and have us be open to the ways that you communicate your love and care and direction in our lives, God? Thank you for your word. Help us never to take it for granted. As we worship you, God, may we do so in spirit and in truth. Amen. Let me send you out with the benediction. As you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. Amen. Have a great Sunday. Just a reminder, Blair needs some help with the chairs. If there'd be uh, two or three people that would be willing to stack them over there, that would be great. Thank you.